Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Okay, this is the first part of Chapter 2 of the book, The Rape of the Mind, by Dr. Juiced Merlou. Again, a medical doctor, uh, a psychiatrist, and from uh, the Netherlands. And so I'm going to go ahead and read this. And Chapter 2 is titled, Pavlov's Students as Circus Tamers. So here we go. And again, there are subchapters throughout, which I'll start and stop at particular subchapters. It says, quote, Before asking ourselves what the deeper mental mechanisms are of brainwashing, false confession, and conversion into a collaborator, let us try to see things from the standpoint of, of the totalitarian potentates. What is their aim? What terms do they use to describe the behavior of their prisoners? What do they want from the Schwabels and the Mindsentees? The totalitarian jailers don't speak of hypnosis or suggestion. They even deny the fact of imposed confession. They think about human behavior and human government in a much more mechanical way. In order to understand them, we have to give more attention to their adoration of simplified Pavlovian concepts. First subchapter is titled The Salivating Dog. In the latter part of the 19th century, the Russian Nobel Prize winner Ivan Petrovich Pavlov conducted his famous experiments with a bell and a dog. He knew the salivation. He knew that salivation is associated with eating, and that if a dog was hungry, its mouth would water each time it saw food. Pavlov took advantage of this useful inborn reflex, which serves the digestive process to develop in his experimental am animal the salivating response in answer to a stimulus which would not ordinarily create. Each time Pavlov fed the dog, he rang the bell, and at each feeding, the dog's mouth watered. Then, after many repetition, repetitions of the combined food-bell stimulus, Pavlov rang the bell but did not feed the dog. The animal reacted to the bell alone, just as he had previously reacted to the sight of food, its mouth watered. Thus the scientists had found out that the dog could not be induced to salivate involuntarily in response to an arbitrary signal. It had been conditioned to respond to the ringing of a bell, as if the sound were the smell and taste of food. From this and other experiments, Pavlov developed his theory of the conditioned reflex, which explains learning and training as the building up of a mosaic of conditioned reflexes, each one based on the establishment of an association between different stimuli. The greater the number of learned complex responses, also called patterns, the greater the number of conditioned reflexes developed. Because man, of all the animals, has the greatest capacity for learning, he is the animal with the greatest capacity for such complicated conditioning. Pavlov's experiments were of great value in the study of animal and human behavior, and in the study of the development of neurotic symptoms. However, this knowledge of some of the mechanisms of the human mind can be used, as we have seen already, like any other knowledge, either for good or for evil. And unfortunately, the totalitarians have used their knowledge of how the mind works for their own purposes. They have applied some of the Pavlovian findings in a subtle and complicated way, and sometimes in a grotesque way, to try to produce the reflex of mental and political conditioning and of submission 
and the human guinea pigs under their control. Even though the Nazis employed these methods before the Second World War, they can be said to have reached their full power in Soviet Russia through a continued repetition of indoctrination, bell ringing, and feeding. The Soviet man is expected to become a conditioned reflex machine, reacting according to a prearranged pattern, as did the laboratory dogs. At least such a simplified concept is roaming around in the minds of some of the Soviet leaders and scientists. Dobrogev. In accordance with one of Stalin's directives, Moscow maintains a special Pavlovian front, quote-unquote, and scientific council on problems of physiological theory of the academician. These institutions, part of the Academy of Science, are dedicated to the political application of the Pavlovian theory. They are under orders to emphasize the purely mechanical aspects of Pavlov's findings. Such a theoretical view can reduce all human emotions to a simple mechanistic system of conditioned reflexes. Both organizations are control agencies dealing in research problems, and the scientists who work on them explore the ways in which man can theoretically be conditioned and trained as animals are. Since Pavlovian theory is proclaimed by the abdurate totalitarian theoreticians as the gospel of animal and human behavior, we have to grapple with the fact that they adduce to prove their point, and with their methods and theoretical explanations. What the Pavlovian Council tries to achieve is the result of an oversimplification of psychology. Their political task is to condition and mold man's mind so that its comprehension is confused to a narrow totalitarian concept of the world. It is the idea that such a limitation of thinking to Lenin-Marxist theoretical thinking must be possible for two reasons. First, if one repeats often enough, it's simplification. And second, if one withholds any other form of interpretation of reality. This concept is based on the naive belief that one can permanently suppress any critical function and verification in human thinking. Yet through taming and conditioning of people, during which period errors and deviations must continually be corrected, unwitting, unwittingly, a critical sense is built up. True at the same time, the danger of using this critical sense is brought home to the students. They know the dangers of any dissent, but even this promotes the development of a secondary and more refined critical sense. In the end, human rebellion and dissent cannot be suppressed. They await only one breath of freedom in order to awake once more. The idea that there exists other ways to truth than those he sees close at hand lives somewhere in everybody. One can narrow his pathways of research and expression, but a man's belief in adventurous new roads elsewhere is ever-present in the back of his mind. The inquisitive human mind is never satisfied with a simple recital of facts. As soon as it observes a set of data, it jumps into the area of theory and offers explanations. But the way a man sees a set of facts and the way he juggles them to build them up into a theory, is largely determined by his own biases and prejudices. Let me be the first to confess that I am affected by my own subjectivities. Even the words we use are loaded with implications and suggestions. The word reflex, for example, so important in Pavlovian theory, is a perfect instance of this. 
It was first used by the 17th century philosopher Descartes, in whose philosophical system a parallel was made between the actions of the human body and those of a machine. For example, in the Cartesian view, the automatic reaction of the body to certain painful stimuli, example, withdrawing the hand after it has come in contact with fire, is compared with the automatic physical reflection of light from a mirror. The nervous system, according to Descartes, reflects its response just as the mirror does. Such a simple explanation of behavior, and the very words used to describe it, immediately denies the whole organism taking part in that response. Yet man is not only a mirror, but a thinking mirror. According to the old mechanism, an old mechanical view, actions are associated only with the part of the body which performs them and they have no relationship whatsoever to the purposeful behavior of the organism as a whole. But man is not a machine composed of independently functioning parts. He is a whole. His mind and body interact. He acts on the outside world, and the outside world acts on him. The innate reflexes, of which his hand withdraw is one example, are part of the whole system of adaptive responses which serve to help the individual, as an entity, to adjust to change circumstances. They can be described as the result of an inborn adaptation tendency. The only real difference between the innate reflexes of the conditioned reflexes is the former supposedly has developed in the entire race over the millions of years of the evolutionary process, while the latter are developed during the lifespan of the individual as a result of the gradual automization of acquired responses. If you analyze any one of the complicated actions you may perform during the course of a single day, for example driving an automobile, you will see that it occurs outside your conscious management. And yet, before the process could be automatized, the actions purposeful, purposely directed toward the satisfaction of some goal had to be consciously learned and managed. You were not born with the innate reflex of jamming on the brake to stop a car quickly in an emergency. You had to learn to do it, and in the process of learning and driving, this response became automatic. If after you learn to drive, you see a child running across the path of your car, you put the brake on immediately by reflex without thinking. The next subchapter here is titled The Conditioning of Man. Quote, Pavlov's research on the machinery of the mind taught us how all the animals, including man, learn adjustment to existing limitations through linking the signs and signals of life to body reactions. The mind creates a relationship between repeated simultaneous occurrences, and the body reacts to connections the mind forms. Thus, thus the bell, rung each time the dog was fed, became a signal to the animal to prepare for digestion, and the animal began to salivate. Recent experiments conducted by Dr. Gregory R Razrand of Queens College show how men may develop these same kinds of responses. Dr. Razrand treated a group of 20 college students in a series of free lunches at which music was played or pictures shown. After the final luncheon, these 20 students were brought together in another group who had not been luncheon guests. At this meeting, as at the luncheons, music was played and pictures shown. 
and all of the students were asked to tell what the music and the pictures made them think of. The music and the pictures generally reminded the first group of something related to eating, but had no such association for the second group. There was obviously a temporary connection in the minds of the luncheon guests between the music and pictures on the one hand and eating on the other. The Chinese did their mass conditioning in a very, in an even simpler way. After having taught the prisoners for days to write down all possible nonsense and political lies, in an atmosphere of utter confusion and stress, they were ripe to sign collectively the lie of having taken part in germ warfare. All conditioned reflexes are involuntary temporary adjustments to pressures which create an apparent connection between stimuli which may be in fact totally unrelated. For this reason, the conditioned reflex is not necessarily permanently imprinted on the individual but can gradually disappear. If after the dog's conditioned reflex to the bell has been deployed or been developed, the bell is rung over and over again and no food is presented to the animal. The salivating reflex disappears. Doubtless, Dr. Razan's Razran's students will not always think of food when they hear music. We could describe the conditioned reflex another way. It is a selected response of the mind-body unit to a given stimulus. The ways in which the stimulus and the response are connected vary considerably. They may have been associated in time, in place, or by coincidence, or by a common aim. And thus they may form a special condition complex in our mental and physical attitude. Some of these complex responses or patterns are more autonomous than others, and will act like the innate patterns. Some are physical and are continually changing. Analysis of some of the psychosomatic diseases, for example, show us how our inner emotional attitudes can intensify or even change a conditional response. Stomach ulcers is an example of such a psychosomatic disease. They may arise when the body manufactures too much hydrochloric acid, which is necessary for the digestion of food. The stomach ulcer patient is a, is a person who reacts to strong emotions, especially repressed hostility, with an excessive secretion of hydrochloric acid. The innate secretion reflex, favorable for the digestion in the case of hunger, grows into an unfavorable conditioned reflex where hunger and aggression mutually increase the hydrochloric acid secretion. Gradually, more and more of the sour fluid is manufactured until finally the patient finds himself suffering from ulcers. The stomach consumes, as it were, its own tissue. This same paradox may be seen in many educational processes. The mother who puts her child on too rigid, on too rigid a feeding schedule may change the child's favorability response to hunger into a stubborn reaction against feeding. For our purpose, we may be aware that conditioning takes place throughout all our lives in the most subtle and in the most obvious ways. We discover that the molding of our personalities may occur in the, in the thousandfold ways through such matters as these. The meal training given in early childhood, the harshness or the musical tone of the words spoken to us, the sense of haste in our surroundings, the steadiness of family habits or the chaos of neurotic parents the noises of our machines, the reservedness of our friends, the discipline of our schools, and the competitiveness of our clubs. We are even conditioned by such things as the frailty of our toys and the coziness of our houses, 
the steadiness of traditions, or the chaos of a revolution. The artist and the engineer, the teacher and the friend, the uncle or the aunt and the servant, they all give shape to our behavior. The next subchapter is titled Isolation and Other Factors in Conditioning. Quote, Pavlov made another significant discovery. The conditioned reflex could be developed most easily in a quiet laboratory with a minimum of disturbing stimuli. Every trainer of animals knows this from their own experience. From their own experience. Isolation and the patient repetition of stimuli are required to tame wild animals. Pavlov formulated his findings into a general rule in which the speed of learning is positively correlated with the quiet and isolation. The totalitarians have followed this rule. They know that they can condition their political victims most quickly if they are kept in isolation. In the totalitarian technique of thought control, the same isolation applied to the individual is applied also to a group of people. This is the reason the civilian populations of the totalitarian countries are not permitted to travel freely and are kept away from mental and political contamination. It is the reason, too, for the solitary confinement cell in the prison camp. Another of Pavlov's findings was that some animals learned more quickly if they were rewarded. <sighs> wow. By affection, by food, by stroking. Each time, they showed the right response, while others learned more quickly when the penalty for not learning was a painful stimulus. In human terms, the latter animals could be described as learning in order to avoid punishment. These different reactions in animals may perhaps be related to an earlier conditioning by the parents, and they find their counterparts among human beings. In some people, the strategy of reward and flattery is a stimulus to learning, while pain evokes all the resistance and rebellion. In others, retribution and punishment for failure can be a means of training them into the desired pattern. Before he can do his job effectively, the brainwasher has to find out which category his victim belongs. There are people more amenable to brainwashing than others. Part of the response may be innate or related to earlier conditioning to conformity. Pavlov also distinguished between the weaker type of involuntary learning, in which the learned response was lost as soon as some disturbance occurred, and the stronger type in which training was retained through all kinds of changed conditions. As a matter of fact, Pavlov described more types of learning than this, but for our purposes it is only important to know that there are some types of people who lose their conditioned learning easily, while others, the so-called stronger types, retain it. This, by the way, is another example of how our choice of words reflects our bias. The descriptions strong and weak depend completely on the aim of the experimenter. For the totalitarian, the weak POW is the man who subordinately refuses to accept the new conditioning. His weakness may be, in fact, a resistance, the result of a previous strong conditioning to loyalty to anti-totalitarian principles. We never know how strongly conditioning the initial learning are impressed on the personality. Rigid, dogmatic behavior has its roots in early conditioning, and so may submissiveness, based on ignorance rather than knowledge. Pavlov showed, too, how internal and external factors interact in the conditioning process. 
If, for example, a new laboratory assistant was brought in to work with the animals, all of the newly acquired patterns could easily be inhibited because of the animal's emotional reactions to the newcomer. Pavlov explained this as a disruptive reaction caused by the animal's investigatory re reflexes, which led them to sniff around the stranger. Current psychology tends to interpret it as a result of the changed emotional rapport between the animal and his trainers. We can easily expand the implications of this more modern view into the, into the field of human relations. It points up to the fact that there are some persons who can create such immediate rapport with others that the latter will soon give up many old habits and ways of life to conform with new demands. There are inquisitors and investigators whose personalities so deeply affect their victims that the victims speedily yield their secrets and accept entirely new ways of thinking. We can see the same thing in psychotherapy, where the development of an emotional rapport between doctor and patient is the most important factor leading to a cure. In some cases, rapport can be established immediately. In others, rapport can, cannot be built up at all. In most cases, it develops gradually during the course of therapy. It is not difficult for a psychologist to test a man's softness and willingness to be conditioned. And as a matter of fact, the Pavlovians have developed simple questionnaires through which they can easily determine a given individual's instability and adaptability to suggestion and brainwashing. Pavlov found that all conditioning, no matter how strong it had been, blamed inhibited through boredom or through the repetition of two weak signals. The bell could no longer arouse salivation in the experimental dogs if it was repeated too often or its tone was too soft. A process of unlearning took place. The result of such internal inhibition of conditioning and the loss of conditioned reflex action is sleep. The inhibition spreads over the entire activity of the brain cortex. The organism falls into a hypnotic state. This explanation of the process of inhibition was one of the first acceptable theories of sleep. An interesting psychological question is whether too much official conditioning causes boredom and inhibition and whether that is the reason why the Stakhanovite movement in Russia was necessary to counteract the loss of productivity of the people. We can make a comparison with what happened to our prisoners of war in Korea. Under the daily signal of dulling routine questions, for every word can act as a Pavlovian signal, their mind went, to, went into a state of inhibition and diminished alertness. This made it possible for them to give up temporarily their former democratic conditioning and training. When they had unlearned and unsuppressed the democratic way, their inquisitors could start teaching them the totalitarian philosophy. First, the old patterns have to be broken down in order to build up new conditioned reflexes. We can imagine that boredom and repetition arouse the need to give in and to yield to the provoking words of the enemy. Later, I shall come back to the system of negative stimuli used in conditioning for brainwashing. Unquote. So there's at least two more subchapters within this chapter. But I hope that as I'm reading this and you're listening to it, that you're thinking of not just the schooling system that exists in America and all over the world, because that certainly has been run by this Pavlovian dogmatic system, but that you're thinking of the heads on TV 
and how they all say the same things and generally the same tones and they just try to get everybody to you know to buy into it to believe it and then to act toward it the mask wearing the distancing you name it injecting themselves with shots experimental jabs calling them vaccines when they're not over and over and over again and people are believing it i'm telling you what this book is amazing it lays it all out it just lays it all out so that's the end of part one. I'll come back with part two and we'll wrap up the chapter. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless. <laughs>